maybe just say your name and what you ate for breakfast this morning. That'll just give me a sound test here. Make sure you're coming through clear. My name is Dan Bean, and I had a beer and some strawberries. Oh, I love that. <laughs> How were they? Uh, the beer wasn't that great. What'd you have? Strawberries were good. Did you actually have a beer for brekkie? <laughs> no, I had. Uh, I just had strawberries. And the reason I said a beer is because I actually had a can of empty can of beer sitting out on my counter, and I held it up for my daughter and said, "I should have this for breakfast," and she was disapproving of that. <laughs> How old's your daughter? <laughs> She's 16. Okay. Well, that's good. She's a high schooler. Good thing she wasn't like, yeah, let's do it, Dad. Yeah, come on. <laughs> what kind of beer was it? It was it was called Surfia out of, I think it's a Buena Vista brewery. That's right. I'm just curious. I, I think some beers lend themselves to breakfast more than others. For example, yeah. you don't want to have an IPA in the morning. But some of the wheat beers or the flavored beers, there was this great beer called pineapple mana from maui bruco mm -hmm. and it was just so good as a as a breakfast drink and then here in town talbot's colomosa oh. is a really good brekkie drink it's kind of a substitute for a mimosa i really like that i don't know if you've tried it it's orange juice with cider i haven't tried it it's really good yeah. i would think if you had a beer this morning your lecture that you were doing probably would have gone off the rails a bit uh, it wouldn't have been good i might have i would have either passed out or fallen asleep or something. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more about that. Who you were talking to the state of Colorado? I was I was talking to um the Conservation Services Conservation Board and we were talking about biocontrol. There we have people from the conservation board and it's a system that was set up back in the nineteen thirties for soil conservation and now they're called conservation districts and the state's divided up into, into districts that look at soil conservation, invasive weed control, and water conservation. And it's under under the Colorado Department of Ag umbrella. And they, so they zoomed you in to... They wanted to know about, about weeds and weed biocontrol. I'm so stoked to be here at the Palisade Insectary. I was telling you before we came on, I'm a Palisade resident kind of drive by here not that you guys are off the main road a bit but i have a friend that lives up the street so often come by and i always look at this place and i think what the heck goes on there in sectory you have some guesses and then i ask people in town and they're like yeah they do stuff with ag and very vague answers and most people have never been in here so i'm so excited to be here thank you for having me what what is biocontrol what do you mean when you say that it's the use of biological organisms as pest control. In other words, natural living creatures employed to control your pests through um, ecological means. In other words, they eat them, they sting them, they cause diseases in them. And for biocontrol, for what we do, a biocontrol agent might be an insect, a mite, or even a rust fungus. And the biocontrol targets are weeds, mostly, and other other insects so it's bug on bug action or bug on weed action yes and you're turning the tables on a predator that's gotten out of control you're releasing an even greater predator upon them to take them out essentially yeah in some in some cases in some cases with a weed it's just releasing an enemy on it that will chew on it and cause it problems how did this facility get started if you can give me just a little background of how this place came to be in Palisade, why it's here, and how long have you guys been in operation? 
I always look at the peach farmers, and they're the, they're the ones that are really responsible for us being here, which makes us a real Palisade-type institution. In 1945, they had a problem. An invasive species from Southeast Asia came here, which was called, it's called the peach moth or oriental fruit moth, and they didn't have any way to control it. The life cycle of the moth is they spend a lot of their time either in a peach or in a twig, and so it's hard to spray. And back in 1945, there weren't very many spray options anyway. So they were looking at biological means or any means of controlling it. And there happened to be, in development, a wasp that attacks it and lays an egg in it and kills it from the inside out. There happened to be in development this? <laughs> Where was that happening? Uh, it was it was happening in California. Okay. So uh, what does the peach moth do, though? I'm not familiar. Do they, they eat the actual peaches? Do they hurt the tree? In the spring... They attack the tree, but that's not where the major damage is. It's they, their later generations attack the peach itself, and then they, they bore into it and turn it into a wormy peach. A wormy peach, <laughs> which just, you don't want. Oh, you don't so want to when see. you pick the peach, it has bugs in it, worms in it, kind yeah. of like you see in corn sometimes when like, they have the worms in there. Like corn or apples are a good example of something that's got the coddling moth that you just when you bite into it, there's. Uh, there's a mess. So, and especially with Palisade peaches, which are very, they're um, a high-end crop, very well. It, it takes a- Cash uh, crop, baby. Yeah. Definitely. And very specialized. Like they're, well, I'll just put in a pitch for Palisade peaches. They're they're the best around. Um, you don't got to pitch me. I'm sold. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> I'm looking out the window at them. But it, it takes a lot, of, uh, a lot of effort and energy to grow a peach in Palisade. And they're they're bigger and better and sweeter than any place else. And when if you have a developing caterpillar inside of one, that just kind of trashes the whole thing. Yeah, right? not not going to go over well in Denver when they they get no. the product over there or wherever it is in Denver. Anywhere around the nation where they're shipped, I mean, then then you basically lose all that value. Of course. So how did this moth get here? You said it's from Southeast Asia, so it sounds like they tracked it somehow. Was it brought over on a shipment of something? And first ended in California and eventually made its way here. What's the history of that moth here? A lot of our, we're all about controlling invasive species and all of them come here from somewhere else. And some of them, we don't really know the actual path for their getting here. They can, like that moth probably arrived on, on some nursery stock or some people say there was a gift of, uh, of some sort of fruit tree to, uh, one of the to Woodrow Wilson or somebody back in those days, and they were on it. Nobody really knows for sure how it got here, but it started on the coasts, both coasts, and worked its way in in the 20s and 30s and hit hit the center of the country in the 40s. So by the time it got here, California was already working on it. They were working on it. They had their extension people and their research, their ag research facilities dedicated to figuring out how to control it. Let's go back to that story. They find the peach moth here, the farmers. Did they contact the state of Colorado? What what did they do from there when they discovered it? They did. They contacted the state of Colorado, local agencies, and they decided to... The Colorado Department of Ag in its current form wasn't didn't even exist in 1945. We predate it by a little bit. I mean, there were... The Department it, of Ag wasn't it, around? It was called something else, and I forget what it was called. But wow. It, yeah, I, the, in its modern form, I think it started like four years after. But other entities 
that were interested in controlling economically devastating pests in agriculture got this got this place going. How did that all come together? Was it strictly because of the Palisade peach moth that this place right here exists? It is. And wow. It, okay. And yeah, if you live in if if you're in Palisade, go to First and Main, and there's a sort of a low lying, elongate residential building that used to be the Palisade Insectary from 1945 till 1992. Ah, so it wasn't always here. It wasn't always here. What solution did they come up with? So you you just took me on a little tour before we jumped on here, and you showed me this rack of potatoes that had what looks like cat litter all around it, (laughs) and you were growing some type of larva. And is that, am I getting that mixed up, or is that correct? That's sort of the process that you are still combating this peach moth today. Tell us about that. Yeah, that is a process, and it was developed way back then. The first people to to do it were in California, but they shipped that knowledge here, and they set up the facility on First and Main. The process involves growing the parasitoid wasp, and a wasp, a lot of the wasps in nature are parasitoids, meaning they attack and eat out their host from the inside. Yeah. And this one, this one is a, a really good one of those. It attacks and lays an egg inside, inside of a caterpillar, and the egg develops and, and eats it from the inside out. So our goal is to grow a bunch of these parasitoid wasps and release and give them to the farmers to put out in their field. So in order to grow them, first you have to grow something for them to eat. And they feed on peach moth, but they also feed on another ag pest called potato tuber moth. And we have potato tuber moth in the Palisade Insectary. We grow them too. And so we provide caterpillars to to the parasitoid wasp, which is known as MAC to the farmers, Macrocentris, short for Macrocentris. And we provide them with potato tuber moth. They lay eggs inside of them and develop. And they kill the potato tuber moth from the inside out in its pupil stage. And at that, and at that point, we have the pupil stage of, of the parasitic wasp, which is, that's what, you, that's what the farmers want out in the field. They want the wasp. So and we, that pupil stage looks like a little caterpillar, a little slug almost, right? Yeah, it's like, it's like a a very dark grain of rice. It doesn't really move around. And we sort them, we put them in, in paper bags and give them to the farmers. We call the farmers and they come in and pick them up. So some of the, the big farms might pick up 150 bags of those and take them out and hang them up in the orchard. One bag per acre and a thousand of these parasitic wasps will emerge. And they're really good at finding their prey. So they'll they'll spend their entire life running up and down a peach branch, running running out to the tips of twigs and searching for their prey, which are uh, caterpillars of the peach moth. That's so crazy. Nature is so wild. Like, can you imagine if humans, that's how we lived? Like we attacked something and laid an egg inside of it and then it just ate it from the inside out. Like that's so crazy. I'm sure you see this kind of stuff all the time in the insect world. Well, it's why entomologists that watch the movie Alien aren't at all surprised by anything <laughs> that happens there. It's like, it happens all the time on a small scale. It's predation from the inside out. And you might notice that I'm calling it a parasitoid, not a parasite, because it really doesn't parasitize 
as much as attacks this organism from the inside out and completely kills it in one shot. A parasite would live in it a long time and such. So biologically, it's a little bit different. And that's that's how a lot of um, predatory insects make their living. They Crazy. attack from the inside out. And you're calling it a wasp, which it is called that, but mm-hmm. it looks more like a mosquito to me. That's what I asked you when I first walked in. I said, are these mosquitoes? And they don't look like the wasp that's going to build a nest in your yard and sting your dog or something. That's a really good point you make because when I tell when people tour the insectary and I tell them we release 1.5 million wasps a year, they look at, <laughs> they look at me like I could strangle you for doing that. <laughs> but but then I assure them that they're they're non-stinging. And in the world of hymenoptera, which includes the wasp, bees, and ants, most of them aren't. They don't. They're not aggressive toward humans. They don't sting us. A few do few of the social ones that are protecting their colonies like bees and wasps but the majority of them really use use their superpowers of finding and stinging to go after their prey items out in the field how did you guys figure this out like how do you figure out that this wasp would attack in this way and target exactly i mean how does the research process for that go oh that that's a good question we don't we don't do that type of basic research here but usually you go out and you find the insect that you're targeting and you take them in and you grow them up. You keep them in a lab setting and see if anything emerges from them. Just trial and error yeah, over you, the years. Yeah, you see what's out there. Do you know how many years they worked on that before they found the perfect wasp to, to do this job? I would guess, I don't know for sure, but I would guess about 10 years. Wow. Like usually, and in this case, they probably went to... Um, a number of different wasps that are known to be parasitoids and tested them out, just exposed them to the caterpillars to see if they were interested in them, would lay eggs on them. And most don't, but they found one that did. That's amazing. And is that still the main project here today? It's the longest lived project here today. And in terms of the numbers released, I think it still is the biggest project here today. You've been here how many years? Since 2005. 2005. How did you get into this line of work? Like, <laughs> What is your background? And tell me about growing up. Were you collecting bugs in a jar when you were a kid and trying out all kinds of things? <laughs> yes. I, um, I, collected, I collected everything when I was a kid. Anything. I had, I had insects. I had spiders. I had frogs toads lizards snakes everything imaginable and my mother said and she was she was nice about it she said if it stays in your room it's okay with me once it gets out of your room it's not okay (laughs) (laughs) hey that's a compromise i love that (laughs) yeah it was good anyway i i did collect and raise a lot of insects and became interested in the natural world through insects and eventually, after thinking about other potential career options, decided that I would go to graduate school in entomology and learn more about insects, which I'd, I had loved as a kid. But do you remember as a kid why you were so interested in these bugs? Was there something that drew you, drew you to them other than just a childlike curiosity? Or did you feel like at that time, this is my absolute passion? I feel a lot of kids, you know, <laughs> will connect, uh, collect lightning bugs or caterpillars. And it's just something that you do as a kid. But you seem to have really taken to it, obviously. You've been doing it your whole life now. 
there were two things, three things I could point to. One, I watched caterpillars pupate. In other words, they shed their caterpillar skin. They sit there as a as a pupa, which is a, the state in which the the moth or butterfly develops. I watched them do that, and I watched them emerge as a moth or butterfly. In your and, bedroom. In my bedroom. Wow. And I had a lot of them. And then I also tried to feed them and grow them. And so I would get plants and have them in my, my bedroom and tried different plants with different caterpillars. Um, I know we had tomato hornworms on our tomato plants, and I was really fascinated by those. So I picked parts of the tomato plant, bring it in and feed them in my room. And my dad would say, you can't have all of my tomatoes. but <laughs> And then they, they would go into the ground, which they do, and they overwinter underground. And then when they emerge, it's a very large moth that looks like a hummingbird. So that was fascinating to me. I had ants, ant colonies in my room. I would, I had glass, glass-paned cages so I could look in and see them excavating. And just the way they worked together and accomplished tasks together and communicated, you could tell they were, they were talking to each other. They are touching each other and leaving chemical signals. That was fascinating. It was like, they were my pets, but they were really, they were intensely engaged in building and in maintaining their colonies. And so I would watch that. I thought it was, I thought it was amazing and I wanted to see it firsthand. So ants are amazing. I heard something recently that if you, this could be totally made up, but that if you added up the weight of all the ants in the world, they would outweigh humans. Definitely, definitely. Really? Right. Yes. Wow. That's crazy to think about. <laughs> they have a, a very large biomass. Is there anywhere in the world they don't thrive? Uh, Antarctica. Oh, that makes <laughs> sense. Yeah. Okay. So will. <laughs> that's about, that's about it. <laughs> Maybe there could be an Arctic ant, you know, who knows? <laughs> now, where did you grow up? I was born in Nebraska. That's where I first got my, um, my insect interest as a, as a small child. And then we moved to Southern California and I maintained it there. Were the bugs drastically different between those two places? Was that oh, a fascinating move for you? It, they were very different. In fact, when I got to California, I I started making an insect collection. I caught some butterflies like most kids do, made a collection, found some other things. And then I sent a letter to my grandmother who lived in Seward, Nebraska, and said, Grandma, can you can you find a, a Katie did for me? And... Uh, a cicada, which are the buzzy things that make a lot of noise in the trees because I couldn't find any in, in California. So she was very, very nice. She um, she mailed you the bugs? She did. Really? <laughs> yes. Wow, right. That's I got, amazing. I got them in the mail and and sent her. Oh, that's... The light yeah. went off. That's okay. Yeah. We're, we're setting the vibe now. Yeah, and I, I put them in my collection, and when she came out to visit, I said, hey, here's what you sent me, Grandma. So, yeah, they were different. I recognized it, and I knew that if my grandmother couldn't find them, then they weren't there. Now, looking <laughs> back on that, does that horrify you since you're shipping bugs from one area <laughs> of the country to the other, which is exactly what causes most of the problems in today's culture <laughs> or today's world with the invasive species? Um, it doesn't. They they were dead. Ah, okay. Yeah, she she killed them before she sent them, and they arrived dead, and... How do you kill a bug without squishing it? Just suffocate it? <laughs> uh, the ways, you know, the way the way that I did it back then was to get a, a glass jar and put carbon tetrachloride in it, which is really a bad idea. What is that? It's a component used in dry cleaning. 
a carbon with four chlorines on it, highly toxic. <laughs> <laughs> and you would sprinkle this over the bugs? Uh, it's a liquid. Oh. So you'd, you would soak a piece of cotton and put it in the bottom of the killing jar. And then the, the insects that you threw in the jar would die. So I wouldn't do that now. I'd definitely not recommend it. But later, when I taught entomology, we use cyanide, of all things, too. Like, you put cyanide in the bottom of a killing jar and pour plaster Paris over it. And I had the students make those jars. And then I decided, I'm not going to do that anymore. And I was talking to the students, and they said, oh, why not? And I said, you know, cyanide kills them quickly, but it's really toxic, and it could kill you. And they were complaining that what I was going to have them do was use, use a liquid that was far less toxic, but took longer to kill the insects. And as they were complaining about it, one of the students brushed the killing jar off of the lab table and it fell and it broke and shattered right at my feet. And I said, that's why we don't want cyanide. <laughs> so carbon tet was the same. Like you don't want to use that anymore. Yeah. That makes total sense. So you love bugs. Like you're not scared of any bugs, right? Like people are scared of spiders and that kind of stuff. It doesn't bother you at all. In the insect world, I'm not I'm not afraid of any of them. I'm cautious about some of them. Which ones? Uh, some of the large stinging insects. Oh well, that makes sense. Yeah, d- definitely worth. Did you ever watch Fear Factor? I I haven't. Okay. Do you know the concept of the show? It, contestant show. They make mm-hmm. you do wild things. But one of them is that you would lay either. It's kind of like a glass casket full of worms <laughs> or cockroaches, and it was a mental game. Would you Would you lay down in a a, a casket of uh, cockroaches? I would, especially would. if I was going to win a prize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would. I yeah, mean, motivation's key, me. yeah. That doesn't bother me. Well, I saw in the back when we were walking through, you had a little cage of cockroaches, and you mm-hmm. called them screaming cockroaches? Hissing cockroaches. Hissing cockroaches. <laughs> I didn't know they existed. When they get irritated, they make the hissing sound? They do. They, they blow some air out of their um, spiracles, which are the equivalent. That's where their lung equivalents are. And you said someone had them as pets. I never met anyone who had cockroaches <laughs> pets who was over the age of eight. And I think if I did, I'd be like, honey, let's get out of here. What's up with that? Uh, yeah, we had a, we had someone who worked here had a number of pets that were um, arthropods. Arthropod Cock- is a cockroach. Cockroaches. He had some beetles in his closet, uh, raised them in his closet. So he had, he had a lot of things going. But he... He maintained the colony. He left. Uh, some people here had adopted the colony. of. They're called Madagascar hissing cockroaches. And you can find them, you can find them at, at um, science museums, other displays of insects, because they're fairly, they're benign. You can hold them. Uh, they're easy to raise if you, if you feed them the right stuff and give them a good habitat. And they are large, and there's no doubt that you're holding a large living creature when you hold one of these. And what do you use them for here? We, you know, when when Joel was here and he had them as pets, we started taking them to festivals and demonstrations where we wanted to meet and greet the public and tell the public what we did. So we started taking them to the Palisade Honeybee Festival. And that was quite a few years ago. And my daughter would hold them out and people would look at her at that time she was little and see her holding this giant cockroach and it was pretty irresistible like they had to stop at the booth to check that out so they're your PR reps it, it was it was a 
PR thing, and they were they were really good PR reps. Like they could get people to stop. That's and, a great idea. So they don't really do anything in terms of the biocontrol we're talking about, but it does help people. Like, oh, what's that? Why is that guy? Have, why is that little girl holding a cockroach? Let's go over. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have a PR problem? I mean, maybe you do in a way, because I was saying like I had no idea what happened here. What happens here? And do you guys find it's difficult to get people interested in your work, other than the people you're directly benefiting? I think the problem isn't the work or the interest. It's that people don't realize that this kind of stuff goes on at all. Usually when somebody gets in the building and starts walking around and seeing what we do, they become very interested. But people generally don't understand or know what biocontrol is or how it's used and how it's used in agriculture or how it can be used outside of agriculture and any kind of resources management. And so just getting people to have a look at it and listen to an explanation is our PR problem. Like once they know about us, I'd say 99% of people like it. The other 1% is grossed out. Like, (laughs) you know, they, they just can't deal with the whole concept, but getting people initially to take a look at what we do is that's, that's our PR problem. And what are you hoping to gain by that awareness? God, I have bugs flying around me everywhere here. What is this guy? Is that Uh, a wasp? That is, that's one of them. Should I be afraid? Is he going to bite me? Nope. This is a non-stinger. If you were, uh, if you were a peach moth, you should be afraid, but you're okay. not a peach moth. So I think you're safe. And so it looks like just, I don't know, like a little fly, a, a mosquito kind of without mm-hmm. the, the stinger on the front, but he has a long tail, but that's not a stinger. Yeah. That's, it's a female and it's an ovipositor, which is a fancy word for an egg tube, <laughs> something that positions the egg and inserts it into the prey item so that's what they would land on a larva and use that to Mm -hmm. inject essentially or lay their eggs into there interesting it is and it's as you can see it was about as long as the body of of the parasitoid wasp so it's pretty long they can stick it down in and there are sensors on the ovipositor it's kind of like having a it's like the end of your finger you could you could feel stuff with it and sense and smell they smell it with the end of that ovipositor too it's like if you had a, a nose and a finger on the end of a stick like so they they're able to sense the parasitoid and lay an egg in it what are you guys hoping to accomplish with this awareness you go to the honeybee festival you have a booth there why do you do that i mean if you're kind of focused on biocontrol with agriculture why do you what do you hope to gain by the public awareness do you guys need funding what are your goals there it's a combination. I mean, one of the bottom lines would be funding. Like we're state-funded, state, state funded, uh, 70% state-funded. And we also serve the people of Colorado and feel like we want people to know that they're, they're getting their money's worth. I mean, we're not a very expensive institution, but we want them to know like, yeah, we, we – we got so, you back. We're helping you. Yeah, we 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 give you. I think the average Colorado taxpayer might spend twenty twenty cents per person in the state of Colorado for the institution per but, year. Twenty cents per year, mm-hmm. really? <laughs> but it's but it's important that people know that we're doing we're doing good work, valuable work, and we're also doing work that results in some some processes that people really want or enjoy, um, including let's say, including um, diminishing the use of pesticides. So instead of using pesticides, coming to you guys and saying, here's our problem, 
mm-hmm. help us without dumping chemicals on it. Exactly. Right. And, and most farmers in the valley are doing that already, I'm guessing. Are coming to you. Um, the peach farmers. Only yes. peach farmers, though. Only peach farmers. Like we, we wish we had more biocontrol agents, but the peach moth is the one that we that we have a, a solution for. Okay, but I saw in your greenhouses here that you are working on other things, just small weeds. It looked like right, so like right. weeds that you would have in the home. And just to before we get into that, just to tie it in, because I don't think people realize it. I certainly didn't know. You're saying you're helping the farmers, which makes total sense. But any person can call you and say, "Hey." I have this peach tree in my yard. I have this weed. What do you got to help me? And that's a taxpayer-funded program down to the individual, right? It is. And you call that the Rent-A-Bug program? Request-A-Bug. Request-A-Bug. Cool. So they can go onto your website and literally request to get something, even just a normal person in their house who has less than an acre. Yes. That's incredible. I mean, we would make some recommendations if you had one peach tree, it's probably not worth releasing um, Macrocentris on it. Mac. Uh, I want to do a massive launch. I got one peach tree. I can't <laughs> wait to do it. <laughs> uh, it's probably not worth it. The one that's the most popular with all homeowners is field bindweed. And bindweed, sometimes it's called like wild morning glories. They're a, it's a vining plant that produces kind of a nice flower. Sometimes they're whitish to pinkish in color. And a real pain for homeowners and farmers and almost anybody that wants to do anything outside. How often are you contacted by a new farm or a new homeowner? For Request-A-Bug? Yeah. We we ship out about 2,500, make about 2,500 shipments a year through Request-A-Bug. Wow. Okay. So, so a couple a day. It's, well, more than a couple a day. It, I'm bad at it, math. It's but. big. Like in the in the spring, it can be pretty intense. And when you when you walked in the front door, you saw Samantha Morgan, Sam Morgan, at the front desk, and she has to enter all these into a database, all the requests into a database that we respond to. And she's very busy in the springtime. At what point does it get where we're kind of wasting your time? Like for example, this spring, I put weed and feed on my lawn because mm-hmm. I want to knock the weeds out that come from the irrigation system. Would it be a waste of your time if I took pictures of my weeds and came to you and said, hey, here's what I got. Do you have anything non-chemical that can go in my yard to kill this? Is that something you're not interested in or is that part of this program as well? I think in those cases, the best thing to do would be to go online and see what we have. And then if you have questions about, is it worth it with this plant? Take a really good photo or actually take a sample of the plant, bring it in and ask us. Uh, we do we do take questions from the public all the time. People walk in the door. They have sometimes they have really amazing insects, which I always like. Like the cool bug people will come in with something that's like that thing is is awesome. Thanks for bringing it in. What do they bring in? What have you seen recently? They can bring in some very large beetles. One of the things that I always like seeing are Dobson flies, which are very large aquatic insects that they spend their immature stages in the water as predators and they emerge as very large winged creatures that look like something from outer space that have huge mandibles kind of large papery wings and they come to lights at night and they're you know i know the listeners can't see it they're about four inches five inches four inch wingspan wow um really 
pretty amazing. So people will catch those and bring them in. Um, and they're like, what is this? What is that? <laughs> Should <laughs> is I it be gonna, afraid? <laughs> is, it, is it bad? Is it going to kill me? And my response to almost always when people bring insects in is it's not harmful to you. Most of them aren't. Like even things that look scary usually are, are harmless. What are the top problems we're troubleshooting in Palisade right now? So the, the the peach moth, but what else are you seeing now? And I think right now our our biggest problem in the valley is Japanese beetle. They were introduced quite a few years ago in Palisade. Uh, I think intentionally about, introduced? No, accidentally. Okay. And they they come from uh, come from the far east again. They were established in in the eastern U.S. And anybody who's spent some time in the eastern U.S. has learned to hate them. They accumulate in large numbers on your roses or other plants, grapevines, unfortunately. And they feed in turf, so they, their larval stages live in the ground. Uh, the adult stage is a really nice coppery green color with spots around, uh, around the perimeter of, of its back. But they call in each other with pheromones, amass on your plants, and chew them, and they're really messy. And nobody wants them. And they, um, they were released in or introduced in Palisade accidentally in probably around 2000. Uh, before I got here, when I got here, there was an eradication program in place with a lot of cooperation from the citizens of Palisade. And I think I didn't believe that they could be eradicated, but because of the tight nature of this community more than other places, everybody got on board. Every single homeowner had to keep an eye out for Japanese beetle and treat for them. And the uh, Mesa County and Colorado Department of Ag, but mostly Mesa County spearheaded it. We, we sponsored it here, brought them under control and essentially eradicated them. And what was the treatment for them when people uh, would spot them? You have to either dry up your lawn, stop, stop watering it. That's one possibility or treat it with, uh, with pesticides, which, you know, some people don't want to do. Right. But um, they're gone now. They're gone from Palisade now. Wow. That eradication program worked. Unfortunately, the Front Range has a major infestation, and there's a lot of pressure, meaning a constant tendency for insects to move around. So they've been established again, only this time down the road from Palisade in Grand Junction. And it oh, looks, so they're making their way back. They're making their way back. So there's a lot of, uh, let's say, worry and concern, rightfully so. I just said they like grapes. Yeah. Nobody wants that here. I mean, talk about a cash crop, right? Mm -hmm. The emerging cash crop. Are you guys trying to get ahead of this? What's your plan? We can't do anything when it comes to eradication. And I always point out that biocontrol is, it's an ecological control method, meaning you establish a relationship between the control agent and your target, the weed or the insect, and you bring down the level of the target so low that, it no longer is a pain for anybody, economic pain, environmental pain. So with Japanese beetle, we have a biocontrol under development over on the front range, and we could bring it over here, but it's not going to eradicate Japanese beetle. What we want, we want to eradicate them here, right, right here and now, just get rid of them entirely. But we want to follow up just in case that turns out to be impossible. Um, or we're still keeping our fingers crossed that it can be done. But if it's impossible and we're going to suppress rather than eradicate, then we'll immediately start a biocontrol program here. And we've, we've talked to 
uh, extension service, the CSU extension service people here and the county. So they know we're ready. And if needed, we'll, we'll jump right in. Do farmers come to you? Do you guys have consults with them once a year or something to talk about what they're seeing or to inform them, hey, if you see some beetles, this is what's up and you need to call us? How do you outreach to winemakers and farmers and peach growers? Unfortunately, our main contact with peach growers, not unfortunately, it's great that they come in and pick up their parasitic wasps. So when they come in the door, we give them, we give them paper bags full of wasp pupae and talk to them. Once in a while, we haven't done it for a while, but once every few years, we do have a consult and try to get some of the growers in and say, like, what are what are the problems on the horizon? Uh, with Japanese beetle, we don't even need to talk to them. <laughs> we know it's uh, it's sort of a everybody's nodding and saying, yep, we got to do something about that right away. And uh, we'll develop a biocontrol program and assist any way we can with with eradication. Uh, last time, last time we assisted by just providing a headquarters here for the team that that did it with uh, Mesa County and CSU Extension. This time, we'll be available for any any way possible to help out. You guys focus mainly on bugs that are affecting agriculture and things like that, obviously. Have you ever tried to target just annoying bugs, like fruit flies, for example, that <laughs> invade our town every summer? <laughs> no, we haven't. We don't target any any native species at this point. Fruit fly is a native species. It is. Well, it's a it's it's found all over the world. the The fruit fly that the common fruit fly that Drosophila the fruit flies are found all over the place. So they're they're natives. Uh, we don't try to use biocontrol against them at this point because they're not causing any harm other than just annoyance. They're they're annoying, and, and we're people have to live with them at this point. <laughs> we sure do. Yeah, <laughs> especially this time of year. You have a quote on your website, and it says the best way to stop a bad bug is with a good bug. Mm -hmm. So that makes a lot of sense with what you're doing here, <laughs> trying to figure out bugs or things that will prey upon the problem. Now, that's really an optimistic thing, right? Because when it works, it works. But mm -hmm. we've seen examples all over the world with biocontrol gone wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure a lot of people confuse these things because you guys are scientists working here, really studying it. It's not haphazard, but there's so many examples in the past of biocontrol gone wrong. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious of your thoughts on that. Invasive species get moved places with ornamental plants. You have kind of all the famous stories of rabbits in Australia or introducing mongoose to try and get the rats, but that doesn't work. Things like that, right? That have caused mm -hmm. two problems. Talk to me a little bit about that. What are your thoughts looking back on history? And I guess in the past, mm -hmm. it wasn't a scientific, right? It was just hunches. Yeah, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't scientific. And I just... The example that I always use is probably one of the major screw-ups of biological control history, because I don't even consider it to be biocontrol, but it was the release of a very large toad in Australia to control an insect that, that attacked um, sugarcane. And this very large toad is called the cane toad, and it was collected in South America and released in northern Australia, where conditions are semi-tropical. Uh, and they can grow sugar cane. So they released them there, and the toads got out of control. They never actually ate the the beetle at all. They didn't control the problem they were released for. This was in the 1930s, 
and then they started hopping <laughs> and leaving the area where they were released. And from a few hundred toads released in Australia, now they have literally hundreds of millions of toads and they cover vast swaths of, of uh, the moister parts of Australia, the northern parts, and they eat everything. They eat, they eat all kinds of insects. They eat, they eat mice. They eat native species. They eat anything that they can stuff into their rather large mouths. And some I of them, think I saw a video of this. They yeah. can swallow a rat. They can. Right? They have these huge, <laughs> and they just like, they're fat, right? <laughs> they almost look like Jabba the Hutt or something. They are Jabba the Hutt. Yeah. Exactly. I saw a video of that recently. <laughs> That's crazy. Okay. I know exactly what you're talking about. Do these kind of stories put like a shame on the industry or do they shine a negative light in the public eye? What, what do you think? Well, they definitely shine a negative light because people think, well, they're, they're crazy. Like they did that horrible thing and these things can get away from us. I, whenever I talk about biocontrol to any, any group, if the, if the talk's going to be longer than a few minutes, I bring up safety because that is primary concern. What we do now in terms of safety requires at least 10 years of work before an agent is ready for release. And they're, they're host specific. And in the world of, in the world of insects, we have some that eat anything in their sight, like Japanese beetle, a great example. We just finished talking about them. They'll eat, eat anything from grapes to roses. Most insects aren't like that. Most of them really have one species that they go after and they'll go after that. And they would, like I tell people sometimes, they would rather die than eat broccoli. And it, I literally saw that happen in one of the labs I worked in when I first started. Um, my first five years in biocontrol, we did host testing where we'd put potential biocontrol agents in with, with ag crops and they would die. They would not feed on them at all. And it's just because they're so well developed to feed on their host plant. They have a relationship with the plant. They can smell it. They can detoxify it. They can see it and they don't go after anything else. And those specialists, as, as we call them, specialists are really tuned in to one or a few closely related plant species and leave everything else alone. The cane toad is not a specialist by any means. The mongoose, definitely not a specialist. Those early weird attempts at biocontrol were really not done with any biological insight whatsoever. And then, then later, people would implement biocontrol thinking that I don't care if it eats a native plant, as long as it doesn't eat wheat, we're good. And so there is there is a time when only agricultural plants were considered as possible non-target, potential non-target impacts. But now we consider native plants, we consider ag plants, um, a whole suite of plants. Before we, before we ever approve anything for release, we do these choice tests. And 10 years. And 10, it's frustrating for us, really, because <laughs> it takes so long. Yeah, but, but it's so important. It I is. mean, you release something and it goes wrong or eats something you don't expect, then, mm -hmm. oh boy. I yeah. Mean, right? That's a lot. Like, does that give you anxiety? You know, when I first started in the, this particular business, it gave me a slight bit of anxiety. But before I entered biocontrol, I was in insect physiology, which is studying insect, the inner parts of insects. I was in agriculture, studied insect plant interactions. And I already had a pretty, pretty good idea of the relationships between insects and plants. So some of it didn't bother me. Like I knew that um, there are 
generalist insects that can feed on almost anything, but I also knew that um, we have very specialized insects. I was still worried about it when I entered the field about 23 years ago now, but then I started doing my homework and looking at all of the agents that have been released, all of the times when they fed on something that we didn't want them to feed on, and in North America with our biocontrol agents, it's been zero, really, for weed biocontrol in North America. They've only feed on what we've predicted that they were going to feed on. And that's a good a good track record from nineteen the 1940s when first weed biocontrol agents were released to now. Yeah, when was the last disaster that just one of these, like, toad releases or mongoose? Do you, do you guys pinpoint that in the industry and say, like, one of those signs that, like, 100 years since our last accident or something <laughs> like that? Do you remember when the last, like, really disastrous biocontrol event, what, what, what it was? You know, in terms of of really, like, you can put your finger on it, disasters. I think you do have to go back to the cane toad era. Um, when was that? What year was it? Was that 1935 or so? Oh, 1935. 1930s, okay. 35. But there have been other incidents along the way where biocontrols have been released that we do, we are concerned about them. There was an agent released against, against the thistles. Uh, everybody knows about thistles. They're kind of prickly things. Some of them are very weedy and they come from elsewhere. Some of them are native. Um, an agent was released called Rhinocillus conicus, which is a, a weevil, and it was released to control the invasive thistles, um, Canada thistle being one of them, musk thistle. And when it was tested in labs, it also ate the native thistles. And this is why I brought up like the tightening away the tightening of restrictions so that we're not just considering agricultural plants. Um, it ate native thistles, but the regulators back in the 1960s said, I don't know if we really care. Native thistles, like nobody likes them that much anyway. And people, some people don't like them. They're, they're annoying because they're prickly. And so that one, you'll find those eating native thistles. They're, and I don't yet see evidence that they've eliminated native thistles or really been a hazard but it's a possibility so we track those and at that point rhinocillus conicus is known as the evil weevil <laughs> by some it still is controlling musk thistle which is bad but it can be found on some natives and there are scientists who track to see if is that going to cause a problem with native thistles yeah how do you know what a hundred years down the road is going to look and how do we I just feel like there's so many factors in that because you don't know until you know. And the thistle may seem like it's not important, but even something like you introduce this wasp, right? How do you factor in what might eat that? Right now you're introducing perhaps more food for the birds to come eat the larva. And then, you know, how does that affect what they've eaten before? Maybe they eat less of what they ate before, which makes that go up or are all these things bouncing in your head? Well, yes. And when when I was trained as an insect physiologist, I didn't venture out into the world of ecology and my science life. But since I've started started working biocontrol, I have gotten into uh, gotten into another learning phase late in life and have been very interested in ecology, which is the interaction of organisms in the environment and all of the really complexities of that. So, yes, I do worry about it. Uh, yeah. you, every time you introduce something into the system, 
it's going to interact in multiple ways from top to bottom in the system. So once in a while people say to me, uh, aren't you worried about introducing a biocontrol agent for Russian knapweed that it might, it might have an effect on the ecology of the system? And I say, we are trying to have an effect on the ecology of the system. That's our goal. We want, we want to control Russian knapweed, which has a lot of negative impacts on the ecology. And that way we alter the ecology in ways that favor native plants or agricultural crops. So we, we do want some of these far-reaching interactions to occur. Um, and we, we hope for that in the end. Um, but we also keep our eyes open. Um, I mean, you can say that, yes, when we introduce a biocontrol agent, we're providing a food source for something else, for a bird or for something unwanted. So that kicks around in my, that kicks around in my, my brain. It doesn't actually infiltrate my nightmares at this point. Oh, good. Um, but all of the, all of the, all of the agents, that, all of the organisms that we're targeting, the invasive species, part of the evaluation of them in order to develop a biocontrol agent is to learn what impact they're having on the environment. For instance, tamarisk has multiple levels of impact on the ecology of riparian ecosystems. If we do nothing about it, we know that there's strong negative impacts throughout everything from water use to soil condition to native plant condition. And when you, when you hurt native plants, you hurt native, other native species, native insects or mammalian wildlife. So we already know that the invasive species are having far-reaching ecological impacts, which reverberate throughout the system. So when you bring in like a tamarisk beetle, you say, well, what can that do? Maybe a bird's going to eat it and something else is going to eat the bird. Like, But you know that the tamarisk is already damaging the ecosystem. You're taking a specialist that only feeds on the tamarisk and you're assuming that if there are ecological reverberations that they're going to be, if they're negative, they're going to be far less than the tamarisk in the first place. And we're hoping that they are primarily positive. So that's a long answer. No, that makes sense. <laughs> and the tamarisk is what's devastating Riverbend Park, for example, mm-hmm. all those trees down there. Now, what? why not just do a little old-fashioned cut them down? What is the benefit? Have you guys looked at that? Of you know, You're going to release this beetle and do all these studies. Is there just too many to go in there and cut down? Like I know a lot of places do that with mangrove because that was highly invasive. Mm-hmm. A lot of islands have that problem. They weren't yeah. native there. And they just go in and cut them down. I mean, it takes years and years and years and a lot of sweat and blood, but that's a solution they've come up with. Does that seem, is that just unreasonable to do in a place like Colorado where you just have so much space? The magnitude of the Tamaris problem makes it makes it so you can't, you're not going to get rid of them all that way. But as uh, as biocontrollers, we like to promote integrated pest management, which means using as many different methods as you can to tackle the problem and making sure that they mesh well with each other. Cutting down tamarisk is still a good idea. People do it. It's an option. Um, sometimes after beetles have fed on the tamarisk for a while, it's good to go in and, and remove like the sickly dying ones. Having beetles in the system provides a background of, let's say, a background of misery for the tamarisk itself. A tamarisk has trouble producing a lot of foliage, keeping its root system vigorous and intact. Tamarisk has, a tamarisk that's been attacked by beetles multiple times 
doesn't produce as many flowers, so it's it's less invasive. So we're we're hitting it from one side, but we always encourage other control means and the integrated pest management approach to to invasive species control. What's up with the pine beetle in Colorado? You'd be the great guy to ask. You drive I-70, you see tons of pine trees that have died, a lot of fires, the result of it. And I know in recent years they've been out of control. What's the latest update on that? The pine beetle is a native species. And that that's what I always tell people right off. Like, Really? It, it wasn't, it, yeah, it wasn't introduced from somewhere else. And there are, there are many species of pine beetles there there are a number of species of beetles that feed on on conifers and they have they have similar life histories of attack and feeding and laying their eggs under the bark and they they attack trees that are stressed in general pines or other conifers can fight off beetles by if you ever wonder what all that sap is when you injure, injure them, uh, they stuff let that, them out. The stuff that comes out can actually be a very good repellent against insect attack. When the pine is weak and doesn't have as much of a carbohydrate store to produce these things, and is maybe water stressed, they can't they can't fight them off. And once the beetles get established, they have a syst- uh, a communication system that is it's pheromone mediated communication. They call in all their friends and they just, once they weaken a plant, it's like gang up on the weak guy and just kill it. And right now the forests are stressed, especially the the drought has really been highly damaging for our coniferous forests. And so, so this beetle is not something that's been out of place and come here and done this devastation. It's really, they've been able to thrive because our forests are weak in general due to drought and other environmental factors? Yes. Wow, I had no idea about that. Yeah. Thank you. That's amazing. You're welcome because, I mean, it's a great question. People come in and ask all the time, like, are you going to get a biocontrol agent for pine beetles? And if you, when you think about what we do, uh, going to relying on natural enemies from other continents, the pine beetles have natural enemies here they just have managed to outrun them because their food source is so abundant and stressed out what's the solution does anybody what's like what are they doing now nothing you know it is possible to treat trees it's also after dieback you probably have to physically remove the the dead trees and get new ones to come in behind i think over time there'll be an ecological shift where pines may not be able to make it in the in the drier parts of our of our mountains really so we'll have and that that's what happens in nature when you have um, ecological shifts you have different flora and fauna move into places how do you see that from a bigger picture global warming is a big topic now we don't have to get into the politics of that but <laughs> do you see like something that's happening for example with the beetle and the pines do you see this as just a natural ecological shift that humans should yeah it's sad and it's it's change for us but is this something we should let happen because over the course of hundreds of thousands of years the forests are going to come back it's all a cycle or is this something we should try and play god on and stop and save every little thing it's i always wonder about that right in the short term Mm -hmm. our interventions seem smart but in the long term 
are we fighting a losing battle? Is everything, is all this natural process going to happen anyway? Well, I mean, speaking strictly about the pine beetle and, and coniferous forests, I think we're well underway to some ecological shifts. It's not, you know, it's not a, it's not theoretical. It's not political. It's just, it's underway now. And scientists are working on trying to figure out like, what's the end point where, where will things go from here? Um, I mean, it's, it's a simple fact that a high country has less water stored in glaciers. It's warmer up there. Um, all you need is a thermometer to determine that. And so there will there will be stresses. There'll be water stresses on the forests, and the forests will probably move move to higher elevations. You'll see you'll see the the forests of lower elevations will be at higher elevations as it warms up. You'll see that southern trees will move northward. I mean, the cottonwood is a good example. There are strains of cottonwoods that do very well down in Arizona, New Mexico. Um, they can handle high temperatures. Those are the strains that currently are recommended if you're doing, if you're doing really well thought out restoration in, at more northern latitudes because they will, they'll be able to handle drier conditions and higher temperatures. So it's a matter of adapting and adjusting to it. We can and should understand it deeply and study it and know it, but adaptation is part of it, figuring out what, what's it going to be like and how long is it going to take to get there, and maybe intervention where we possibly can. Do you have make a distinction between what's best for humanity and what's best for ecology and the earth? outside of us right because again we want to tinker with stuff that affects us or that we appreciate because we're used to do you compartmentalize that or do you how do you keep emotion out of it when you're thinking about these things i think that what's best for ecology is also best for humanity and that's the way i i don't compartmentalize it it's all in one big compartment if our ecosystems go down we go down and people don't fully i think People might argue with that. Some people might, but I think those that are paying very close attention to ecosystems, ecosystem shifts, know that it's it's true. We the ecosystem is something that we need to both understand and protect. Not just you know. Sometimes people say, "Oh, like we should save the planet." I don't. I never use that terminology myself. I say we should save ourselves. We should save the systems that we depend on and that's that's the planet like there's no there's no lines in my in my brain on that that's interesting we humans are so interesting to me just <laughs> and because of our mentalities and the stories and the myths that we buy into and there are a lot of things that factor into that in this case i think something applicable is that a lot of people because of religion and and things think that we came into this world and they don't necessarily think of us coming out of the world as being a product of our environment and mm -hmm. of having literally grown out of the earth. I'm not sure of your thoughts on that or if you want to get into it, but that's so interesting to me because sometimes there's a disconnect <laughs> where we think that we're kind of outsiders here and, okay, let's control the environment and everything, but we are the environment. We're a huge part of it, and in my opinion, we came out of that environment. I think it has a lot of practical implications, and that's... That's what it comes down to for me and ecosystem preservation. I think that it's hugely practical. I, I would not even venture to talk about religion. <laughs> I won't go there at all. Um, 
Almost had you. <laughs> yeah, you almost trapped you didn't me take in that the bait. one. Okay. If if I wasn't uh, wearing a CD, a Colorado Department of Ag hat, or wearing uh, a headset, <laughs> or wearing a headset, I might. Yes, exactly. Or but, if you had that breakfast beer, who knows what we'd be talking about? Yeah, I would. But religious feelings aside, I will say that we do depend on the ecosystem, and we can alter it, and we do alter it, and historically. Humans have altered ecosystems more on a small scale. Now, because we're spread out throughout the entire planet, we, we alter it on a very large scale. So part of, part of our thinking as scientists and as natural resources managers is to try to figure out how to blend humanity in large numbers of people into ecosystems that really didn't that aren't there to to serve large numbers of people so you have to be cognizant of what you do to ecosystems how they're constructed and how we can we can get to a place where we consider them before we do major major engineering changes to the planet and there you know there's a people say that's a hopeless view but i don't think so at all i think there's a lot of if you look at the problem properly you don't have to say, oh, I don't like people. We're going to trash them. We're just going to try to save the planet. Uh, that's not true. Like There are ways to, to approach our problems that are human-friendly and ecosystem-friendly. What about the human problem? I mean, we're probably the most invasive species <laughs> of all time, right? I mean, we, I think it's so funny. We, we worry about controlling the peach moth and the deer pop. Oh, the deer are out of control. We got to control them. It's like... The humans are out of control. Who's going to control us? I mean, some aliens probably up there thinking, eh, it might be time. It might be time. These guys are getting wild. You know, we cut down all the rainforest. And I, you know, that that's a, a darker view. I, I am hopeful when I meet people like you because you are with good intentions really trying to, yeah, you, you have these projects, but from hearing you talk, I can tell you get a lot of joy from making the environment as natural as possible and mm. keeping it healthy. I was just in my backyard the other day. I recently planted a tree a few years ago. And for the first time, I saw a bird in it, hanging out in it. And I was mm-hmm. like, I created this habitat. Like, that's cool. Talk to me about the joy that this brings to you. You seem to really love your job and be a happy guy. I do love my job. This was, I worked for a lot of years as a, a bench scientist indoors. And then I, I taught entomology at University of North Carolina. And I would always tell my students who were mostly involved in, you know, they were going into medicine and molecular biology that, you know, you should consider behavior and ecology because that's, re- that's really critical for, for our future. Like understanding ecology is critical. And then I finally looked at myself and said, oh, I think I want to change. I want to change careers right in the middle of things. And so I got into biocontrol. And part of it was, I want to do something that has an impact on our ecosystems, a positive impact, and including agriculture, because agriculture is, it's really ecological at its base. And promotion of agriculture involves an ecological mindset. Do you ever get any people who are, a lot of it surrounding ag, it's it's big money, right? So it makes mm-hmm. sense that the taxpayer dollars would go to f- helping these industries. And you mentioned earlier that sometimes people are 
they say, oh, well, we don't care what happens to the Do you ever get sort of this dark money that wants to come in and say, look, we're growing corn and we want to protect the corn and we don't really care what happens around us because we want the highest yield possible? Do you have people that come in with that sort of narrow view of saying, help us and forget about that farm across the street? We just need something <laughs> that's going to help us. How do you manage that? We don't get a lot of that. Lobbying and that big corporate money doesn't come into play in any of this. No, we're outside of that stream because biocontrol as we practice it is not very profitable. I mean, you might ask like, why, why is the state supporting it? It's because the use of living creatures to control pests is, isn't profitable. If, uh, if one of our neighbors, one of our farmers releases biocontrol, they'll, they'll go to peaches outside of their little one acre zone. It's hard to control that. So in other words, you can get biocontrol without paying for it if biocontrol is working. The other thing is biocontrol doesn't give you instant gratification. You can release something and it might take five years to really do a good job. Mm. Whereas if you spray it with a pesticide, bang, it's dead. It might come back the next year. It might come back the next month, but that's more, uh, more amenable to, to big money. We're not that amenable. There aren't very many companies that ship out biocontrol agents and it's not very profitable. So we, we operate outside of that. And I, and then I'm going to give a pitch for, uh, for the farming community. A lot of the farmers that are more, you know, small, small operations, farmers that maybe longtime farmers, farming families, they're always under the gun to produce. And I know I was at a conference in February where several of them got up and gave testimonials about how, yeah, if you do this, you might be able to get a little more production out of your land, but then your land goes down. Then you start looking at long-term sustainable systems for farming, which is what, which is our goal. We want, we want a farmer, a farmer's great, great grandchildren, if it's a family farm to be, to still have the opportunity to farm. And you don't do that a lot of farming practices that are just designed to mine the land, so to speak, and not really rejuvenate it, uh, won't lead us there. And even though that might be profitable in the short term, in the long term, it's it's devastating. So, Through the use of pesticides and chemicals that produce in the short term but destroy the land. So your goal would be to have biocontrol become something that could replace those chemicals and the use of those things? Definitely. That could fit into the system in a way that a farmer could say, well, I do have a problem and we can, we can utilize biocontrol in one form or another rather than blast it with sprays or do uh, practice farming in ways that don't promote more ecosystem-friendly environments. Are there places like this in every state, an insectary like this, or is this pretty unique place we're sitting in now? This is unique. There's one in Idaho. It's on the Nez Perce Reservation, and it's about a third this size. There's one in New Jersey that's dedicated mainly to controlling insect pests, and hmm, that's about it. Um, you know, departments of agriculture will set up little production facilities, but in terms of what we do here, we're unique. I used to say we're one of a few, but I can't really put my finger on any others. As such, we get 
we help out with a lot of a lot of surrounding states if they have projects and programs we get grant funding and do projects with them because biocontrol doesn't end at the state line right in yeah. fact in fact pest state managed. lines are made up in yeah. terms of the environment yeah if you yeah. if you go right across to utah we have cooperators in utah right down river from here and we've cooperated on projects like the russian knapweed project russian knapweed is a weed that gets into the river system and it's it's pretty devastating up and down the Colorado. We've got a lot of it in Mesa County, but across the way in in Grand County, they've got a lot of it too. And so we cooperate. You have here greenhouses, you have little laboratory, you have coolers where you're storing larvae. You have a lot of things that are contained in this building. You even have fields outside that aren't in the greenhouse that are just open to the air where you said mm -hmm. you do experiments and control. How worried are you about a lab leak or leaking something out that you're still experimenting with? How does that work here in terms of control? Yeah, that's a great question. We don't have anything here that's not, that hasn't already been through the system. Oh, <clears throat> so where do you do the Manhattan project, so to speak, <laughs> where it's, you know, still raw and like you might be worried and yeah. Cause I, I mean, I just had a bug land on me. There could be one in my shoe right now. Who knows? I take it out into the world. So where does that kind of research happen? That research happens at USDA facilities and at several universities have those facilities. You have to get a quarantine facility. Okay. <clears throat> so anything here has been cleared. There's no big risk because that would be obviously. Yeah. The case. We have a containment facility which keeps them from getting out for the most part. But the USDA will not. They're not going to allow us to have anything that's, that is, hasn't been fully approved yet. I used to work in a facility that that was a that was a full quarantine facility, and you had to walk through double doors and put on lab coats and have a mirror to look at yourself to make sure nothing's hanging on to you. And then on the inside, everything was double pane glass, and they had a little moat around the whole facility so that so that ants couldn't go back and forth or anything. And they were very it was a very tightly controlled facility for agents that are still under testing by the time they get here if they get out it's not a big deal like we don't like to let them out but yeah but <laughs> yeah you see what i'm saying especially if you're doing experiments outside i was thinking well what if that goes wrong right what is that like working in a quarantine facility i mean that must make you feel kind of cool <laughs> right like you're getting sprayed I, I, when we, I mean going in i get it you go in i mean i guess you want to be clean going in as well but mm -hmm. coming out like Here's a story for you. When I lived in Denver a couple of years ago, I traveled to Africa mm -hmm. and uh, I had a series of work trips. I went to Africa. I came back to Denver and I had to go right out again the next day to on a separate work trip. So I came home to my apartment. I dropped my bag. I grabbed a different bag I'd already packed and went to the airport the next day. Two days later, my roommate calls me and he's like, well, what the hell? I'm like, what? He's like, your room is a terrarium right now. <laughs> and apparently some kind of flying ant had gotten into my bag. Oh, whoa. And I transported it home. And I kid you not, I'll have to get the video from my, my old roommate, <laughs> but the entire room was just hundreds and thousands of flies, like almost blacking out the room, <laughs> crawling everywhere, flying everywhere. And I had this huge outbreak in my room. And I was gone a week, so my roommate had to deal with it. It's like, sorry, man, I owe you a couple of beers. But it's that it's really easy. I mean, I had 
no idea. I must have just gotten in a sock or a shoe or crawled into my bag when I had it sitting on the ground and picked it up and off I went. So they can be transported out pretty easily. So what are you doing in these quarantine facilities when you exit? Are you getting sprayed down or like stripping all clothes? And It depends on what agent we were working with. There was a there was a mite that we worked with that attacks tumbleweeds, salsola. And we've been trying to find something to control tumbleweeds forever. In that that one that mite, a mites are small. I mean you can see them with your naked eye, most of them, but they're tiny and you wouldn't want to risk anything. So you did have like a changing room. You went in, took off all your clothes, put on a lab suit. If you had hair, which I don't, but <laughs> if you did. You didn't have to tell everyone that. Come on. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you blew your cover, man. Too bad. You could Now we can post your picture, though, so it's okay. Yeah, you can put um, put something over your head, like a, a bonnet that would so that things didn't get in your hair. So it was a it was a really big deal to work in that facility, and when you came out, you had to take everything off. You didn't want the those creatures to escape. In the other half, where you're working with larger insects, you did have to take off your shoes and make sure you didn't have anything crawling on you, and wear a lab coat. But I never felt the the system is such that what we Im- import and have in those facilities has already been investigated overseas. And we have a strong international component to what we do. A lot of our biocontrol agents come from overseas and are discovered by, by our overseas cooperators. So I have, um, I have developed really nice friendships with people that collect insects for biocontrol from faraway places. And the, the people are you know from Italy and Switzerland and France, and they travel all over. By the time that they ship stuff over here, and they're they're good scientists, I don't worry about it too much. They they hardly ever ship anything over that's that's in any way dangerous. So even though we practiced we practiced um, good phytosanitation and insectary sanitation, I didn't really worry that I was going to end the world by walking out. It was it wasn't like working on Ebola virus or. Something in yeah, the imagine that, so right? I wouldn't want to do it. I wouldn't want to do it. Uh, it scares scares me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, well, a done. lot of people think COVID came from a lab, so we can see how high stakes that can be with mm-hmm. big, deadly viruses that these guys are working on. And if they get out, who knows? Yeah, if they escape, it's catastrophic. What what we did, you know, the salsola might. I mean, the tumbleweed salsola is the genus name. If it if it escaped. Actually, I'd be happy because those mites were found to be very specific for tumbleweed. They weren't allowed to be released. We didn't have permits to release them, so we had to. We didn't want them out. It's what we call we have we have a standard operating procedures <clears throat> for biocontrol that we that we follow. There's an international code of best practices, so we follow those. Whether we believe that well, we're at a point where they're not that dangerous. Like we've seen enough, but we still adhere to it because if we screw up then it ruins our profession so have you ever had any scientists go rogue (laughs) just release it on their own in their backyard or something like that (laughs) not that i know of but yeah we have had we have had that accusation leveled against us you did yeah when well there was a a beetle that appeared in arizona that 
attacks tamarisk. Now, the tamarisk beetle everybody's familiar with. It's found around here. But there's another beetle called the splendid, the splendid tamarisk weevil, which was studied overseas. It just hits tamarisk, but it wasn't recommended for release because we first we wanted to release the tamarisk beetle, which is larger, a different family, defoliates the plant. The splendid weevil was on the back burner, and then suddenly it appeared in Arizona in 2007, I think. They're very beautiful. They're small. They they live on the foliage of the plant. They don't go down, down on the leaf litter. There's several things about them that are different from the tamarisk beetle, but they appeared, and and people thought that Certainly it was some of those biocontrollers gone rogue, like they went and collected them and released them and didn't go through the proper channels. I know most, if not all, of the biocontrollers in the Tamaris world, and nobody would do that. Like that that was not, you know, one of my really good friends and longtime colleagues was accused of that because he tends to be a little bit, he likes to go against the system cowboy and, a little bit <laughs> yeah and and he's always thought it's ridiculous that we hadn't released that but i i know he wouldn't do it it probably came over like so many other things like the story you just described of somebody travels abroad and comes over these insects were traced back to probably iraq or iran and we think there was a lot of movement between iraq and here they do go dormant, and they can hide out on machinery, equipment, anything. They probably got here that way. and Yeah, it's kind of crazy to think back. Like, this probably wasn't a problem 500, 1,000 years ago because nobody was traveling that far. Mm-mm. Now we're going back and forth, not only with, I mean, the old story of the explorer ships bringing rats to different islands who ate the ground birds. That was probably the kind of the beginning of that invasive introduction of things. But now we, everybody's traveling everywhere all the time. I mean, I had ants in my bag, right? So mm-hmm. it's so easy for it to happen, and we're going from one side of the world to the other every day. And it, it's an increasing problem. And if you plotted out invasions, invasions versus year, you'd get a nice exponential curve going up, up, up um, because of that, because because of trade, because of of agriculture, because of tourism, like so many different ways uh, we're importing materials that could potentially become invasive. So how do you stay anywhere. optimistic? I mean, do you ever feel like you're fighting a losing battle because <laughs> you solve one problem and then some guy travels back to Colorado from Africa and here we go again, <laughs> right? I mean, how do you see that like on a global perspective? I'm, uh, you know, I'm pathologically optimistic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some places like New Zealand, when you go there, you have to, they'll check your hiking boots. You know, mm-hmm. they'll look and make sure you don't have mud and, I think a lot of more places should be doing that that don't, uh, or they do the ag checks if you go to Hawaii, for example. But they're not that stringent. You know, it's not like they're really. I mean, they're they're doing the diligence a little bit, but things are still getting through. So, do you would you recommend that for places to do more of a some kind of biocontrol measures with tourists coming in and out? I would recommend it, but I can't I can't come up with a scheme to How make it feasible. It? Yeah. Um, I know. The USDA APHIS plant protection and quarantine, you know, they they do all kinds of inspections. They do a material coming in. They inspect shipping containers and all that. They have quite a few people that do that. If you ask any of them, 
they say we can only inspect a fraction of it so they might you know stuff can get by easily and does and it's just it's that is in some ways losing battle um i don't i don't think it's we're ever going to be able to solve it as long as we we live in our interconnected cosmopolitan world the strictest place i've ever been is australia I went there um, once and I had a, a little bag lunch I brought on the plane. Didn't quite finish it and just had it in my pack, didn't really think about it, got off the plane. You almost go through a, a TSA ag when you get off in Australia in certain places and they scan my bag and I think a dog came up and started sniffing it. I'm like, oh my God, what did I forget? <laughs> and they start unpacking my bag and they pull out my lunch and there was only a little bit of cut broccoli left in there. Mm-hmm. but they found that and it was a huge deal. They took it out on a little scale. They weighed the broccoli. They threatened to give me a ticket. They ended, they didn't, but they gave me kind of a stern talking to and were kind of bullying me around a bit because they said that the broccoli could have bugs on it mm-hmm. or whatever. And I was like, geez, you know, I just forgot to finish my lunch, but <laughs> that was the most strict I've ever seen it come about. But yeah, how many people can you do that with? Right. So, yeah. Especially, I mean, with the traffic, international traffic in the u.s so many different ports of entry i mean it would be extremely difficult so i guess we just need more insectaries around the world to combat this um you see this problem it's going to keep growing you know this exponential curve you're talking about it it seems i I can't see the end point to it and of course that brings me back around to when we were talking about safety of biocontrol and when you release a biocontrol agent you can have all these cascading effects that's another thing that that made me kind of think well we're we're introducing literally thousands of new organisms annually and they're not checked for anything like they can be generalists specialists they can be diseases they can be anything so i feel like what we do our little corner of the world are purposeful introductions and all the efforts we make to make certain that they work well it's it's a very tiny fraction of of what ends up introduced into the environment every year. You said you studied insect physiology. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean exactly? How insects are put together and work, their internal workings, how, and I'll, I'll give you exa- an example. Insects have um, a whole system of hormones, which enable them for, for almost anything. They, they, have, they have hormones, they have neurotransmitters just like we do, and... I was, I was interested early on in insect control. I mean, I kind of swung the other way, but I was interested in understanding how they undergo some of their metamorphic transitions. And we, we had talked about, you know, like a, a pupa becoming an adult or a larva becoming a pupa. There's a whole series of hormones that are released that, that bring about that transition. There are hormones, hormones that tell the insect what's, what life stage it's going to be, hormones that tell it to molt, hormones that affect its behavior, because a caterpillar behavior behavior is way different from a behavior of a pupa. So understanding all of those elements of insect biology, I felt would enable us to better control pest organisms. Tell me some things that you learned. You talked about the pine beetle having these pheromones that they can release that then mm-hmm. everybody kind of knows the deal how far away do they can they sense that i mean that's almost like a telepathy it's crazy <laughs> uh, they can sense it far away 
as maybe not not my I don't know about the, I don't know what the there's a so-called active space that's a space in which you can sense the pheromone being released. I don't know how far away that is for pine beetles. Like we have we have pheromones for the tamarisk beetles, for instance, and they were we discovered those early on, like in like 20 years ago, and we want to use those to call in beetles to a tamarisk stand, and we've done some experiments on that. You have pheromone? You mean like in a jar? Yeah. Is it a liquid? It's a, it is a liquid. Really? Yeah. You can collect it. <laughs> we, yeah. The way we did it is that when I first started out in biocontrol, I went to some meetings and talked to people, and there were there was a group in uh, in Peoria, Illinois, who studied pheromones for use in agriculture, and they're they're used widely to sample for pest organisms like the peach moth has a pheromone we can hang traps in the trees around here and determine if a, if a farmer has many peach moths in their in their grove and sometimes most of the time not so pheromones are used in agriculture but not that much in biocontrol so we thought well if we could call in tamarisk beetles to a specific stand of tamarisk to a, a couple of acres of really annoying tamarisk that has been difficult to control other otherwise that would be very helpful so we connected with some some uh, chemists who work on pheromones of insects in peoria and they used their their magic insect physiology skills which literally what they do is hook and hook a, a tamarisk beetle up to electrodes and you can see what kind of what kind of sensory information it's picking up. It's on electrodes. So if, if it gets excited about something, it, it shows up on a, basically an oscilloscope. Like, boom, oh, this, is thing, this thing is causing this beetle to become really active. Like, its brain is going off. You get into the brain of a beetle, and then um, you take things like tamarisk extracts and expose a beetle to it and see what it does. Beetle gets excited with the tamarisk extracts. That means it's probably in the field going to be attracted to them. Now you collect all of uh, the emissions, the volatile emissions from female beetles and male beetles, and you expose a beetle to that and see what happens. And the magic perfume came from males, and it caused excitation in the beetles. That it caused their their brain to become very uh, agitated, aroused, and they wanted to respond to it. So the, the chemists in the lab said, well, we've determined that these are what they call them as antennally active or brain, brain active for the beetle. But what do they do in the field? So one of my early projects in biocontrol was to take their compounds out in the field, hang them up in little vials and see what the response was of the tamarisk beetles to these compounds hanging up. So we went out in the field, hung them up, and reported back to our Illinois compatriots and said, hey, these things are really doing it. Like all the beetles come to them, we trap them, these don't do it. And so they would record all that information. They would sometimes send us some that were nothing just to see see if we were giving them accurate information. That's crazy. Um, it was all blind, blind study. Like we didn't know it was in the vial, we just hung it up and tested it. So then they came up with a formulation of two compounds that are attractive to male and female beetles that are emitted by male tamarisk beetles. And 
the biology of the beetle is such that the male secretes this compound and attracts males and females and they gang up on a plant. For anyone interested in tamarisk beetles, you go out and you see a plant is defoliated, you say, wow, they really wiped that out. But then you step back and ask, ask another question, like why is that plant defoliated or why is that stretch of river defoliated? And down the river, the plants are totally green. And the answer is the beetles work in groups. A single beetle does nothing to a tamarisk plant. Even a, two beetles, two mate, a mating pair of beetles will do nothing. Like those few larvae aren't going to hurt the plant. But the beetles want to really wipe out an entire plant. So the male produce a pheromone. Females and males come in and attack the plant. They feed on it. They lay eggs all over it. And then other compounds produced by the developing larval stages are repulsive to the beetles, so the, the adult beetles. So they all leave, and they leave when the plant's green, and their kids, their larvae, <laughs> defoliate it. But they don't want to lay more eggs where there are a lot of larvae, so they sense, like, we have too many kids here. We're out of here because they're, they're, they smell a certain way, and we don't like it. So it's all the, the odors dictate their behavior in the field and we have we some we have some of the pheromone and we have some of the uh compound that repels them we don't have that one on on hand now but we do have the pheromone components and we're working to figure out ways to attract beetles to specific stands of tamarisk but when you say that they want to defoliate the whole tree do you think they're intentionally like hey let's destroy this tree or that's just the result of them doing what they do it's a behavior that is what we call advent selectively advantageous, like for the species. Like if they defoliate a whole tree, their offspring are more likely to survive and do well than if they just if they lay if they lay their eggs on a tree and nobody else is around and those few larvae attack the tree, chances are good that the low level of predators on that tree will come and wipe them out. If everybody gets together and lays eggs and everybody's larvae are in the same, all their eggs are in the same basket, they can inundate predators. And what that, would a that, predator be, like ants? and Ants are the main ones. Oh. Ants, we've, I've seen ants feed on them for sure. I've seen spiders feed on them for sure. Birds will feed on them. Everybody likes them. Like we said before, it's an ecosystem. Pheromones, like, are you putting a dropper on the tree or are you spraying the tree? Like, how much are we talking about quantity-wise? We're talking about a little vial with about, I'm trying to remember how much we put out this last round, two milligrams. A milligram is a one-thousandth of a gram. So a, <laughs> so dro a droppers. A drop, a droplet. Wow. A and, little goes a long way. Yeah, and it, it, it attracts them. I mean... It's about the amount that a few males would, would be emitting over the course of a few days. Do humans have pheromones? We always talk about that, <laughs> you know, in a sexual way or attracting mates. Is that true that humans have pheromones too, or is that just a figure of speech? <laughs> you know, I mean, this is this is way off topic. but That's all right. That's but, but you know, I I believe the answer is yes. And I only, I believe it because chemical communication is one of the main ways in in the entire biological world like everybody communicates via chemistry and some of it a lot of it is by volatile chemistry 
in other words, chemicals that we can smell. So I don't see why not. Uh, I don't see why we would be different from any other creature out there. I mean, mammals have strong pheromones. If you ever had a dog in heat, you know that every every male for two miles around is going to show up. So, you know, there's powerful pheromones. I don't see why humans would be any different. I mean, it's probably, you know, maybe it's more subtle. Maybe we use... Well, we don't have the sense of smell that a lot of these animals do either. So it's hard. We're more visual. Yeah, we're more visual. I mean, I think we can definitely say more visual. And that's why you're we're attracted to when we see someone across the bar, that's when we're <laughs> like, ooh, there's something about that energy I like versus smelling something and being like, where is it? Where is it? You know, <laughs> Oh, it might be outside. Let me go out there. Yeah, a little different. <laughs> yeah. But there could be, you know, I, I'll, since I'm close enough to retirement, I'll just go out on a limb and say, I'm sure of it. I'm sure there are chemical communication cues in human inter- interactions and attractions. They have to be. I, I just can't see that we've, that we're outside of that realm, even though we might think we are we like to think we're above <laughs> and beyond yeah we're beyond that but what do you make of insects you've studied them a lot their consciousness do you think they are conscious in ways that we don't understand it's hard to define consciousness there are i think they're are they self-aware not maybe not the way we think of self-awareness i mean sometimes i wonder if we're self-aware yeah but right don't record that. no it's fine i mean <laughs> look i'm <laughs> I got a lot of problems with humans, so we could, we could just have a total combo shift if you want. But yeah, well, we think we're self-aware. Yeah, and, we, we do, and, and we and are. Let's, let's define our terms, right? Self-aware in the sense of that, okay, I, I understand myself a little bit. I know I'm a human. Granted, all these things were taught to me, but I'm aware of my body. I'm aware of my situation. I know I'm sitting here talking to you. I have many tasks that I'm managing at one time. Mm-hmm. I know that later I'm going to do this. I know I just did that. I'm curious if insects have that future path. Like, are they like, oh, that last tree was awesome. This one, yeah, it's okay. Or like, are they thinking about their lives the same way we are? Or are they trapped, quote unquote, in the present, which is probably a beautiful thing. We should all mm-hmm. do that more. <laughs> but yeah, or, or are they thinking long-term? I'm just curious if you've seen in your research, Do they are they like, oh my God, I'm captured in a lab. I got to get out of here. <laughs> You know, this is horrible. Or are they just, what's their brain size? I mean, small, but compared to their body, is their brain smaller than, uh, like, proportionally than ours? It is. It is definitely proportionally smaller to their body size. But they do have a a dispersed nervous system. They have, um, it's why if if you cut the abdomen off of an ant, it'll continue to walk around. If you cut the head off an ant, it'll continue. Uh, that's a better example. Cut the head off and it'll walk around. Cut the head off a cockroach and it'll walk around because it has enough, it has ganglia, which are like small brains throughout its body. Uh, so it, it it's capable of performing tasks at the level of, of, of body regions or segments. It has multiple brains? Uh, it, you can think of it that way. Really? Like each each body section or part would have its own mechanism that controls it. It, I mean, there's there's central nervous system communication from the brain and the head of a of an insect is the most complex of its nervous structures, but 
if you go down if you go down the nervous system depending on depending on the species and how advanced they are advanced meaning like evolutionarily specialized you have fewer and fewer of these but every segment has a, a little collection of neurons that you can consider like a mini brain that's fascinating it would be like oh if you cut a person's head off they could still walk around because something in there there's a collection of nerves in their lower spine that's good enough to coordinate walking motion but ants just seem highly intelligent regardless of their consciousness of whether they're aware they're doing it they seem and they're almost one unit right it's just Mm -hmm. like they're not worried about one ant dying or going missing or something right they just have this collective consciousness almost kind of like bees in a hive right yeah and that's why i was asking about you know self-aware and consciousness because we define it on on terms that we know and understand and on those terms i would say that insects are not they're not like us in that way i don't think pretty sure they're not but they also are aware of their environment they're aware of themselves they're aware of each other an ant colony to be a good example they cooperate very intensely and very well Uh, they have all kinds of communication between individual members, um, both visual, sensory, both in touch and, and smell. We just talked about pheromones. They have a whole suite of different chemical compounds that, that enable them to interact within the colony. So, yeah, consciousness on a different level, I think you have to give them credit for it. I kind of envy them in a way. Because uh, some philosophers say this about mammals, because we're self-aware, quote unquote, we're aware of our own mortality. And so we constantly live in a state of fear of like, am I going to die? When am I going to die? And that takes us out of the present a lot. Mm-hmm. But certain animals that don't have that that kind of self-awareness, they're not really worried about it. They just live in the present constantly and then they die. Like a moth, for example, it's born, it flies around, it flies into the light and it's dead, but it's not sitting there thinking the whole time like, Oh, I got to be careful about flying into the light. Right. They just live this ignorant existence in a way that sometimes, you know, might be nice. (laughs) Don't overthink it. Right. It's kind of funny. (laughs) That's my philosophy story for the day. Yeah. And I, insects do avoid, they definitely avoid pain. Do they experience stress? And they they are st- they do experience stress for certain. Like if you put them in certain environments, they they become stressed and they have uh, ways of trying to cope with it, like leaving that leaving that spot. Um, so they experience a lot of a lot of the same environmental impacts that we do. You know, things that come in on them, stress would be one of them. They avoid they avoid pain they they avoid death like they try to they're they're into self-preservation sometimes they drop that like in protection of a colony a bee will sting and that and she's going to die like when she stings you that's that's it once her stinger is removed most of her abdomen comes out with it and it's death so it's sacrificing your life for the colony do you think they know that um that when they sting they're going to die I think on a biological level, they know it, <laughs> not not the same way we think about things, but I'm sure that it's known by the colony and it's probably known by them, but um, 
It's kind of fascinating to think about, yeah. right? Yeah, and you try and make a comparison <laughs> to human behavior, and there just really isn't one. I guess soldiers going off to war have some sense that they may die in the pursuit of what they're doing. But what a bee does is so reactionary. It's mm-hmm. not like they're sitting there like, okay, today I'm going to war. I mean, maybe they are, but my, my perception of it, it seems like they're just reacting to stimuli, and so they don't sit there contemplating it or thinking about it, Yeah, which is interesting. No, their thing is colony is under attack, I'm going to go sting that thing. And I'm sure they don't contemplate, well, then that's the end of my life. But the way the construct of the colony, if you look at it evolutionarily, the construct of the colony, if you could consider that to be its consciousness, is that we're going to lose members. Like when when we're attacked by by a bear or by a human or by a, a rodent that's coming in, some of our members are going to die in this process. But overall, it's going to enable the colony to survive. It's for the good of the hive. For the good of the hive. Love and it. nobody in the hive has a good life. Like people think, oh, the queen is like, she's in this enviable situation. She's not either. Like everybody is, everybody's got their pluses and minuses to their life. And it, really, I'd rather be a worker bee than a queen. Why? Queen just sits in the colony the whole time. She lays eggs and can't ever go outside. Interesting. Worker yeah. bees are the ones that travel far. The they golden see, cage. They see the world. They can check out. They're the ones that get to, like, they just, they can feed as much as they want. They come to a nectar source. They gulp it down, pollen. I mean, they take it back to the hive, but it's more of a, it's more of an adventurous life for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating. We can start to wrap it up. I know it's lunchtime, but I, a quick follow-up question for you. Um, two things, actually. One, uh, so is there anything you've learned in your study of insects that has just changed your perspective on something? Or like in the work you're doing, just anything come to mind that you're like, wow, like that, seeing the way that happens in nature or something like that has really changed your the way you look at things? Yeah, it's cumulative because I've been involved in observing nature and because it's my uh, it's my favorite thing to do and my favorite place to be is outside that's that shaped me since I was you know four years old living in Nebraska and hanging out on my front lawn the whole experience from four till till the present has made me you know that that shaped my my life outlook it's the love of nature yeah the, the love of nature and the uh intrigue with it and looking at nature for life lessons any life lessons that you recall <laughs> that you've learned <laughs> <laughs> i know you're trying to none in none that i i'm you know none none no big ones that i'm going to put out there okay um fair enough do you kill bugs that come in your house or do you release them all catch them catch and release i have two daughters and they're they always they have cups in the house, and so if we find anything in the house, they uh, they started when they were little. But even yesterday, uh, maybe it was even this morning, there was a spider in the sink, and and my wife called for one of my daughters to come and get it, and she came with a little cup and scooped it up and took it outside. So we don't kill most. There are some that we do kill. Mosquitoes we, you kill. Mosquitoes we kill. Can you eradicate them for us, please? That'd be great. <laughs> That's my project. I want you to work on. Get rid of the mozzies. It would. It would be great. I. I don't like uh, biting. 
Diptera. Would, would there be any downfall to the elimination of mosquitoes, in your opinion? There would be, I'm sure, if you thought about it, and their position in the ecosystem, there would be some downfalls. Because they're food for a lot of things. They're food. They, uh, things would change without them, but I can't say that I would support. <laughs> Whatever the consequences would be, I'm willing to accept it. Because <laughs> if you ever been up on the Mesa, you know they're pretty bad up there. They're horrible. But anyway, let's let's wrap it up. Tell me how people can come here and experience this. Do you guys do tours for the public? Can they just walk in? Do they contact you? How can we do that? We have a we have a website that that you can go on, and and you can organize tours of the insectary. We you know we we don't have that many people working here, and we have a bunch of stuff to do. So. It, we can't just do a like a drop of the drop of the hat tour. We have to plan it out ahead of time, and especially if you can get into a group and tour. Um, we do. Anybody can walk in the door. It's a state facility, so you can walk in the front door and say, "Hey, what do you do?" Yeah. Uh, it's not. We don't. We don't try to hide anything. Like every room is open. We're not. Uh, we're not a secret facility. You can come to. Like the Palisade Honeybee Festival, we have a booth and we talked, that thing starts in the morning and ends at four and we have people there the whole time chatting with us and we, we give information, brochures and such. Uh, and there are other events that, that we have booths at. You guys um, should think about doing maybe twice a year when you're not so busy at certain times of year, doing like a community day where you just open it up for people to sign up or come in. That might help a little bit with your PR and outreach if you just pick two dates on the calendar and say, okay, today anybody that lives in Palisade or Junction can come in and, and take a tour and check it out. I think that would be neat. We should do that. I agree with you. Like we've done it. We did it. The Master Gardeners came out a few years ago, a long time ago now. You can see there's a, we have one of our doorstop rocks that was given to us by them, and they, it's inscribed. But they toured. We had 400 people tour the insectary that day. It was intense. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, trying to keep everything clean and ready to go. And well, we don't try to keep things clean at that point. It's just like keep them moving through. <laughs> <laughs> Here it is. Well, thanks for all your work and your time. Appreciate you talking to me, and it's been fascinating. It's cool to know everything that goes on in this building, and we're lucky to have you. Who knew it was so unique? Thank you, Dan Bean, and appreciate you coming on. Well, thank, thanks for having me on, and thanks, uh, like I said, education is big, and the work you do is critical so the public knows what's going on here and everywhere. Appreciate that, Dan. Thank you so much. Bye, everybody. Riding the terrain, flying high up once again Got my crew sitting healthy and my boo living wealthy Level 99, never settle in my mind So I pedal and I climb up the pedestal and find Almighty weapon, so I calm lightly step into the castle Satchel, tackled, wrestled Down the corridor where I'm grounded through the floor Roundhouse into my core, down, out and through the door Sword, down in my side, I gotta round up and ride Face boss, break jaws till I take off Face off, stop and swing my series Strike. This is it. Take the title, disappear in the night to the whole wide world. Got the keys to the kingdom overseas with the wisdom guarantee that my rhythm hit the whole wide world. Slay the boss in the castle when we cross final battle. Then I walk out, travel to the whole wide world. Got the keys to the kingdom overseas with the wisdom guarantee that my rhythm hit the whole wide world. Slay the boss in the castle when we cross final battle. Then I walk out, travel to the Why?